Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Don Ma in for Tiffany Meyer. Here are today's top stories. In New York, Ivanka Trump takes the stand. She says she doesn't remember much about what happened 12 years ago. What was in her emails at the time and why the AG filed a motion in the middle of her testimony? A Democrat upset in Kentucky and another victory in Virginia. We have the results and analysis on some of Tuesday's key races, including what voters chose about abortion access and marijuana in Ohio. The field of Republican candidates narrowing down who will be on stage tonight at the third GOP debate, plus how Trump is faring against Biden in polls. Hunter Biden and James Biden subpoenaed. The House Oversight Committee wants President Biden's family members to testify about their business dealings. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib censured by the House of Representatives. How she's responding to accusations of anti-Semitism, plus other updates on the Israel-Hamas war. Former President Trump's oldest daughter, Ivanka, testifies. She says she doesn't know much about her father's financial statements. Attorney General Letitia James says she does. NTD's legal correspondent, Arlene Richards, has more details. Ivanka Trump quietly arrives at the courthouse, wasting no time to get inside, where she will testify in the civil fraud case brought against her father and two brothers. Attorney General Letitia James, who filed the lawsuit, is not so quiet. Ivanka Trump secured negotiated loans um, to obtain favorable terms based on fraudulent statements of financial condition. Um, and she will attempt today to distance herself from the company. But unfortunately, the facts will reveal that in fact that she was very much involved. We uncovered the scheme um, and she benefited from it personally. No cameras were allowed in the courtroom Wednesday, the first time since the trial began. Ivanka is not a defendant in the case and she didn't want to testify, arguing she would suffer undue hardship by having to travel from her home in Florida in the middle of a school week. But the judge rejected that and later she dropped her appeal. Ivanka generally says that she knows very little about financial statements that the judge determined fraudulently inflated the value of her father's assets to secure favorable insurance rates and bank loans. On the stand, she often stated, I don't recall, to questions about her father's finances. The AG's attorney showed Ivanka her own email communications with potential lenders for her father's Miami hotel property. The terms required that her father have a net worth of $3 billion. In another email, Ivanka had requested lowering the required net worth to $2.5 billion. Yet, her father's statement showed a net worth of over $4 billion. On cross-examination, the defense tried to establish that Ivanka didn't know much about the financial statements. Ivanka Trump is the AG's last witness, but before her testimony ended, the AG's attorney filed a letter with the judge during the break. They want to block several of the Trump team's witnesses from testifying, arguing that the issues that will be discussed were already resolved by the judge when he ruled the statements were fraudulent. They have requested to be heard on Thursday. And some good news for former President Trump. He will be on the Minnesota ballot for the GOP primary election. 
The state's Supreme Court is rejecting a challenge based on the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. The amendment blocks officials from holding office again if they engaged in insurrection. But there's little precedent for how it should be applied, especially as Trump hasn't been charged with insurrection. The Minnesota court dismissed the case but said challengers can try again to block Trump from the general election ballot if he does win the nomination, which is looking likely based on recent polling. Voters cast ballots yesterday to choose governors in Kentucky and Mississippi, decide legislative control in Virginia and New Jersey, and determine if the Ohio state constitution should enshrine access to abortion. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the latest results. Republicans and Democrats were tuning in to see if the results in key races would provide insight into the upcoming 2024 elections. Starting out with the gubernatorial contests, Democrat Governor Andy Beshear won re-election in Kentucky, defeating Republican State Attorney General Daniel Cameron. That's in a state that voted for former President Donald Trump by more than 25 percentage points in 2020. A July poll conducted by Morning Consult rated Bashir the nation's most popular Democratic governor. Cameron had repeatedly criticized Bashir for vetoing transgender-related bills, including one that banned cross-sex procedures on minors and another that prevented men who identify as women from participating in women's sports. In Mississippi, Republican Governor Tate Reeves won his bid for re-election against Democrat Brandon Presley, a second cousin of singer Elvis Presley. Reeves had consistently led the polls in the deep red state, which has not elected a Democrat as governor in 20 years. Over to the legislature, all 40 seats in Virginia's Senate and 100 seats in the House of Delegates were up for grabs. One of the House of Delegates races includes a candidate embroiled in a sex scandal. Democrat Susanna Gibson allegedly engaged in explicit acts with her husband on a pornographic website. Democrats held control of the Senate and won control of the House in those races. The Democrats' sweep thwarts the possibility of a new 15-week abortion ban that Republicans had vowed to pass had they won control of the legislature. In New Jersey, Republicans were fighting for control of either legislative chamber in the deep blue state, where all seats in the General Assembly and Senate are in play. Republicans have gained ground since 2021 when they flipped seven seats and campaigned on issues ranging from the economy to parental rights. Some races have yet to be called, but the Washington Post reports that Democrats held on to enough seats to thwart Republican attempts to take control of one or both chambers for the first time in over 20 years. Over to a pair of Ohio ballot measures. Ohioans voted to enshrine abortion access in the state constitution. That will nullify a six-week abortion limit signed into law by Republican Governor Mike DeWine. Voters also approved a ballot measure legalizing marijuana for recreational use. Turning to the courts, Democratic candidate Daniel McCaffrey won the open seat on Pennsylvania's Supreme Court, defeating Republican Carolyn Carluccio for the 10-year position. His victory widens the Democratic majority on the state's highest court to 5-2. to two. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. What are the key takeaways from last night's election results, and what do they tell us about the general election coming up next year? Sharing his thoughts is a former Trump administration official who says that disinformation about the Roe v. Wade decision is having an impact. 
And now joining us is Cash Patel, senior advisor to Trump for National Security Defense and Intel and former senior Trump official. Uh, so we have uh, yesterday's election results now. So maybe to start off, give us a sense, a general sense. What do the results tell us for, uh, you know, 2024 and the overall political landscape? Well, I think it's great to be with you, and I think it says a multitude of things. Of course, Republicans want to win as many seats as possible. That's the idea of politics. Uh, but when you analyze where the losses were and where the wins were, you start to dissect what is and isn't the quote-unquote Republican movement. Down in ten excuse me, in Kentucky, with the Attorney General Daniel Cameron, a popular candidate for governorship, he was defeated in Kentucky by the incumbent Democrat. And I think what President Trump pointed out early on when he endorsed Daniel Cameron was there would be a surge and there was a surge, but Daniel Cameron was also tied to Mitch McConnell, a very unpopular uh, Republican establishment figure. And I think those two ended up washing each other out to a little bit of a certain degree. And when you go over next door to Virginia and you see the state house delegations that were supposed to have been a victory for Glenn Youngkin, the Republican governor, I think what you see is that the establishment rhino Republican class is not winning out the day. Don, whether you like Donald Trump or dislike Donald Trump, the Republican Party has changed. Um, and that is reflective in these polls, and some, especially in the places where the Republicans lost, where they thought they were going to win. And let me mention abortion. It seems like there was a win for abortion access advocates. Uh, I mean, what do you think this result uh, says about uh, the state of the country and how people feel about abortion? I think many individuals are actually uh, have been submitted to another disinformation campaign, um, specifically with the Supreme Court decision where everybody keeps saying Roe versus Wade was overturned. Legally, that's actually not what happened. What happened in that decision by the Supreme Court this past year was that it sent the decision of abortion to the states. And the states were supposed to then enact legislation, whether it's a 15-week ban, a, a, a multi-month ban or what have you, and exceptions to it for rape, incest, and threat to life of mother, and things like that. And so what I think you see is state legislatures in certain districts taking advantage of that Supreme Court decision and putting that issue on the ballot. But I still think there's a lot of work to do on educating conservatives that what actually happened in the Roe versus Wade decision or the subsequent decision and what state legislatures need to do in their home districts um, to protect against it if you are, in fact, uh, you know, for uh, life. No, some outlets are saying that this puts the GOP in a bind for 2024. Um, I mean, do you think there should be any cause for concern for some GOP candidates? Well, look, it's it's always going to be a cause for concern when you don't win as many seats as you had hoped or any uh, positions that you had hoped for. But I think if you look at the polls for President Trump, they speak for themselves. And he's now beating President Biden in five of six key swing states. And they've been on the campaign, President Trump, for a year. So obviously there is a big messaging component that is resonating with the electorate across America. Um, but juxtapositioning those with the results from last night, again, I go to Virginia and Kentucky specifically, where they didn't embrace all of President Trump's Republican uh, conservative ideologies and did not align themselves with just President Trump, but other figures who are more controversial in the Republican Party. So I think you're seeing this slow change continue in the Republican movement. And whether you like Donald Trump or dislike Donald Trump, you can't argue that he has brought the Republican Party to a new position. And 
That's why he, you know, people are now calling for the ouster of some of the old leadership. And just one more question. Do you think there needs to be any change uh, for uh, Republican presidential candidates in terms of abortion messaging? No, I, I don't think people should change their positions on abortion. I think they should maintain what they believe in firmly. And I think that a lot of the electorate and a lot of the American uh, voting class has spoken. And whether you're uh, pro-life or, 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 or not, I think the, the exceptions um, to a, abortion have become quite popular, such as, you know, exceptions for the mother for rape, incest, and threat to life. I think those are realistic exceptions that candidates need to be talking about more and more, especially with the abortion debate that's going to be front and center of this next uh, presidential election cycle. And I think President Trump has laid out those three exceptions uh, as part of his platform. But um, I think other candidates need to address that. It used to be just hard line yes or no. I don't think it's as black and white anymore. All right, thank you so much today, Cash Patel. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. The third GOP presidential debate is kicking off tonight in Miami. The lineup of presidential hopefuls on stage is now down to five candidates. Tonight on stage, you'll see Governor Ron DeSantis, former Governor Chris Christie and Nikki Haley, Senator Tim Scott and Vivek Ramaswamy. Former President Trump will skip the debate and hold a rally of his own near Miami at the same time. Several recent polls show that Trump is leading President Biden in the 2024 race. A new poll from CNN shows just one in four Americans believe Biden has the stamina and sharpness to serve a second term, while more than half say Trump does. The poll found Biden's support among several key groups is significantly weaker than in 2020. That includes people under 35 plus independent black and Latino voters. You can catch analysis of the third GOP debate as well as a concurrent Trump rally right here on NTD tonight. Join Tiffany Meyer and a panel of experts from 10 to 11 p.m. Eastern time. Hear more reactions from voters and a breakdown of the key moments. That starts at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on TV and on our website, ntd.com. And a fresh round of subpoenas in the probe into the Biden family's business dealings. The House Oversight Committee issued subpoenas today for the president's son, Hunter Biden, and brother, James Biden. The committee chairman, Congressman James Comer, signed the subpoenas. He's also seeking interviews with several other Biden family members and associates. That group includes Melissa Cohen. Hunter Biden's wife, and Sarah Biden, James Biden's wife. Comer said in a statement, the House Oversight Committee has followed the money and built a record of evidence revealing how Joe Biden knew, was involved, and benefited from his family's influence peddling schemes. Financial records obtained and made public by House Republicans show a network of shell companies set up by the Biden family while President Biden was vice president. The records indicate that the family and their companies raked in more than $24 million. The White House today calling Comer's investigation baseless. Meanwhile, on the war in Gaza, the Biden administration again calling for humanitarian pauses, but also reiterating opposition to a ceasefire. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. In response to a slew of subpoenas targeting President Biden's family, the White House today calling the investigation by the House Oversight Committee baseless. Watch. And has turned up zero evidence 
of wrongdoing by the president uh, because there is none. Uh, but Republicans continue to double down on a baseless, a baseless a smear campaign against the president. Meanwhile, on Israel, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Japan today meeting with the foreign ministers of the G7 democracies. While they together called for humanitarian pauses in Gaza, Blinken today again stepped up his opposition to a general ceasefire in Gaza. Watch. All of us want to end this conflict as soon as possible. And meanwhile, to minimize civilian suffering. But as I discussed with my G7 colleagues, those calling for an immediate ceasefire have an obligation to explain how to address the unacceptable result it would likely bring about. And both Secretary Blinken and the White House today saying that they oppose an Israeli reoccupation of Gaza, but suggesting that there might need to be some kind of a transition period after the conflict. Meanwhile, as the war in the Middle East continues, a new poll by CNN suggests that 36 percent of Americans see Biden as an effective world leader, while 48 percent see Trump as one. It further puts Trump slightly ahead of Biden in a potential 2024 rematch. The White House today saying that they're focused on national security not poll results. Back to you. And the U.S. military has conducted a self-defense strike on a facility in eastern Syria used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated groups. That's according to a statement from the Defense Department. The strike was conducted by two U.S. F-15s against a weapons storage facility. The strike is a response to a series of attacks against U.S. personnel in Iraq. The House voted yesterday to censure Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib, a punishment one step below expulsion. The 234 to 188 final vote came after some Democrats sided with Republicans to pass the measure. Representative Rich McCormick moved to censure Tlaib for what he called her anti-Semitic rhetoric and for calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. Tlaib said she will not be silenced, and her criticisms were directed to the Israeli government. She said, quote, The idea that criticizing the government of Israel is anti-Semitic sets a very dangerous precedent. Many opponents of the censure in both parties cited free speech as their objection and warned of the precedent this censure could set. Tlaib becomes the 26th person ever to be censored by the chamber and the second person this year. Tlaib will have the formal reprimand read aloud to her on the House floor. Coming up, DHS Secretary Mayorkas in the hot seat. He wants additional funding for his department, but senators grill him on the border crisis. Democrats join Republicans to shine a light on foreign cash to universities. How foreign threats coming from China and even Hamas are subverting our higher education. Four suicides in 24 hours. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is mourning the loss of active and retired employees. And California strives to produce energy with zero emissions, but some are skeptical of the move, saying the costs will fall on consumers. Details on this and more when we return. In a hearing today, senators grilled the Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas over the ongoing border crisis. He defended the administration's strategy on the border while requesting additional funding. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. 
Do you think that millions of people crossing our border illegally creates the risk of a terrorist attack in our country? In a hearing on Wednesday, the Senate Appropriations Committee took a closer look at the budget requests for the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Health and Human Services. Senator, um, uh, I think that uh, the men and women of the Department of Homeland Security do an extraordinary job of ensuring the safety and security. That wasn't the, the question America. I asked. What I yes or no? Do you do you think that creates a millions of people come here are here illegally? We're not even talking about the gotaways. How many gotaways are in our country here illegally? Does that create the risk of a terrorist attack in our country? Let me assure simple question. Let me assure you, Senator, that the safety and security of the American people is the single highest priority of the. Department so you would say it does create a risk. Security. Mayorkas also blamed the high number of illegal crossings on what he called a broken immigration system. Senator Patty Murray expressed different concerns to Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, noting that last year there were almost 110,000 drug overdose deaths. Secretary Mayorkas, what, what will the president's supplemental request allow you to do to stop fentanyl from entering our country? Uh, Chair Murray, um, it will assist us significantly in our interdiction efforts. We already have done an extraordinary job. The men and women of U.S. Customs and Border Protection and Homeland Security Investigations have engaged in a number of operations, with, which is surging our personnel and our technological resources to the ports of entry where the majority of the fentanyl is smuggled into our country. Mayorkas went on to say that 90% of the fentanyl smuggled into America is smuggled through the ports of entry. Senator Susan Collins suggested that that did not represent the entire situation. What we heard was that 90% of fentanyl is seized at ports of entry. What that doesn't tell you is how much fentanyl is coming in through drones and coming through from gotaways. The second point I will quickly make is DHS cannot ignore the role that Mexico and China are playing, playing in the fentanyl crisis. The precursors, the pill pressers, are coming from China to the Mexican cartels. Although most of the hearing focused on Mayorkas, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra said the U.S. is facing a child care crisis. He explained that the average cost of child care ranges from $5,000 to $17,000 a year. He said the proposed funding could help provide parents with affordable, high-quality child care. Jason Perry, NTD News. And billions of dollars are flowing from foreign adversaries to our college campuses, enabling information campaigns from regimes like the Chinese Communist Party and the Hamas terrorist group. Now the House is taking action to shine a light on this pervasive foreign influence. NTD's Melina Weiskop has the story. Education is a battleground for influence over the next generation of Americans. And unfortunately, our foreign adversaries understand this very well. That's the heart of the issue that Republican Congresswoman Michelle Steele and Virginia Fox are tackling with their deterrent act. It would require colleges and its staff to report even $1 worth of gifts given to them by foreign countries of concern. We know that the Chinese Communist Party is not giving money 
to these institutions for nothing. May be trying to get sensitive national security information. They may just be wanting to influence the way students think. An issue that lawmakers on both sides acknowledge, leading to a bipartisan vote to advance the bill to the House floor. What China has been doing in terms of uh, intellectual property threat goes well beyond traditional espionage. The scale of threat is unprecedented in human history. To infiltrate their development programs or research programs, uh, particularly when it comes to advanced uh, military uh, research. But China's subversion is only one piece of the puzzle. College students are directly impacted today with rising anti-Semitism. A report finds that over 200 American colleges and universities received $13 billion from foreign regimes, which has helped fuel anti-Semitism on college campuses. And the colleges and universities raking in money from the Middle East appear to be ignoring Title VI while they allow Jewish students to be threatened and harassed on campus. And the House Judiciary Committee today held a separate hearing to examine the rise in anti-Israel sentiment on college campuses and the violence that are directed at students who are supporting Israel. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A chemical plant exploded in Texas earlier today, forcing local residents to temporarily take shelter. Officials in San Jacinto County said the explosion took place at Sound Resource Solutions, a company that recycles and repackages various chemicals. It's in a rural area about 60 miles northeast of Houston. The solvents produced in the factory are used to make glue and paint remover. The company confirmed there was a forklift incident and said a worker suffered a minor injury. Officials warned that chemicals from the plant are toxic and can cause eye and skin irritation. A shelter-in-place order was lifted in the afternoon, but authorities are warning locals to limit all unnecessary outdoor activity. Highway 59 remains closed due to the fire. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is mourning the deaths of four employees who tragically died this week, all by suicide. NTD's Christina Corona has more on the story. Within the span of 24 hours, four former and current L.A. Sheriff Department employees died by suicide. The Sheriff Department said three were active members in the agency, while one was retired. The deaths were reported Monday and Tuesday. One of the individuals was Commander Darren Harris, who was discovered dead in his Santa Clarita residence Monday morning. Harris served for 25 years as the Chief Department spokesperson. Anonymous sources revealed to the Times that his passing resulted from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. On the same day, authorities found the body of retired Sergeant Greg Hovland at his Quartz Hill home in the afternoon. Another employee was discovered dead in Stevenson Ranch shortly after sunset. The fourth death occurred at 7.30 a.m. on Tuesday as sheriff's homicide detectives responded to a Pomona hospital where an employee took their own life. L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna said in a statement, We are stunned to learn of these deaths, and it has sent shockwaves of emotions throughout the department as we try and cope with the loss of not just one, but four beloved active and retired members of our department family. Former Sheriff Alex Villanueva posted on X, these four deaths bring the total of nine suicides within the L.A. Sheriff Department headquarters this year. Why so many from one agency? Prayers for all who are hurting. Look out for each other. 
There is no indication that the deaths were related or that foul play was involved. However, the third and fourth deaths were discovered as news of the earlier ones spread through the agency. And if you or anyone you know is suffering from thoughts of self-harm, please call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. California is aiming for 100% renewable energy by cutting emissions entirely. But one columnist says NTD, tells NTD the state's policies are not sustainable and are impacting the cost of living. California strives to reach zero emissions by relying on all renewable energy. But if you look at what we really use to generate electricity in California, it's mostly natural gas. Susan Shelley is a columnist with Southern California News Group. She discusses with California insider CM Karami about California's renewable energy policies. She says renewable energy only provides about 30% of what the state needs. And every day, starting at about 4 o'clock, it begins to decline. And by the time the sun goes down, it's at the solar energy is at zero. And people say, oh, well, batteries. Well, batteries, maybe 3% of the energy we're using at night comes from batteries, and they run out by midnight. $10 billion investment in zero emission vehicles. Governor Gavin Newsom announced last year that the state plans to achieve 100% zero emission vehicles by 2035 to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Oil refineries have also been shutting down. But Shelley says natural gas and oil are still needed to generate electricity. When the state can't produce enough of its own, it will have to import resources. They're mandating all electric trucks. Well, the infrastructure for electric trucks is not ready. The electric trucks aren't ready, but the infrastructure for the trucks isn't ready. According to Shelley, the government seeks to regulate when people will use electricity and how much to use it. It would make the cost of living more expensive, too, as the cost of clean transportation could pass on to consumers and higher taxes on gasoline. All of our global greenhouse gas emission percentage in California is 1%. 1%. The whole state could shut down, and it would make no difference to the global climate. We are, in California, bearing this tremendous burden financially to model good climate behavior, and it doesn't do anything. It has no effect on the climate. And other people may not follow it anyways. If they don't follow it, then for sure it has no effect. Shelley says it is a balancing act between keeping the air clean, but also generating enough reliable and affordable energy for people to use. Coming up, is a UN organization stirring up hatred against Israel in Gaza? We bring you shocking allegations from Watchdog Group about terrorists coming out of United Nations schools. And Hamas's Central Command Center is reportedly under a hospital, the biggest hospital in Gaza. It's expected to be a central objective in Israel's invasion. This and more when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Ivanka Trump testified in a New York courtroom in the civil fraud case involving the Trump organization. She said she doesn't know much about her father's financial statements. As for what's next, New York Attorney General Letitia James filed a request to block some of the Trump team's witnesses. 
The House Oversight Committee issued subpoenas for Hunter and James Biden. This came as part of House, House Republican impeachment inquiry into the president. The third Republican primary debate is set to take place tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time in Miami. It will be the smallest debate stage with just five candidates. Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Chris Christie, and Tim Scott. In the Israel-Hamas war, Secretary of State Antony Blinken called for humanitarian pauses in Gaza, but reiterated his opposition to a general ceasefire. He also said the U.S. opposes any Israeli reoccupation of Gaza. Shocking accusations made against the United Nations agency today. The organization is allegedly stirring up hatred against Israel and Gaza, starting with children in schools. NTD's Arian Pazdar has highlights from a congressional hearing on Capitol Hill. There needs to be plans for the phasing out of UNRWA over time. UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, front and center at a hearing on Wednesday. There should only be one agency that deals with refugees worldwide. The Palestinian one has failed. UNRWA was founded in 1949 to support Palestinian refugees. Witnesses told the House Foreign Affairs Committee that the agency has been infiltrated, saying that teachers at UNRWA schools in Gaza teach kids anti-Semitic hatred, which has had serious outcomes. Graduates of UNRWA who have committed terrorist attacks, and this is over the past 20 years, and they cite numerous graduates of UNRWA schools who commit terrorist attacks. Witness Jonathan Lincoln, who worked with the UN for 15 years, agreed in part, saying teachers at those UN schools should be replaced. Now, UNRWA, of course, is just one of many agencies belonging to the United Nations. But witnesses at Wednesday's hearing didn't just talk about UNRWA. They cited some concerning numbers regarding the UN's handling of Israel. For example, the executive director of UN Watch says that the UN promises equal rights to countries. But is treating autocracies like China better than Israel? Take a look. Never does the UN blame Hamas for launching the war for embedding themselves inside hospitals, homes, schools, and mosques. At the UN General Assembly last year, there was one resolution on Iran, one on Syria, one on North Korea, and 15 on Israel. Zero resolutions were adopted on China, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, and 180 other countries. Jonathan Lincoln said that although not perfect, UNRWA is still very important for Gaza, calling it the only agency that can guarantee necessary aid to refugees in Gaza at this point in time. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Al-Shifa Hospital. Above, a shelter for thousands of injured Gazans. Below, a reported Hamas command center. For Israel's military, a critical mission objective. Here's more. Among the Israeli military's main objectives is the capture of Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest hospital in Gaza and one of the very few still standing. Over 2,000 injured Gazans inside, despite a bed capacity of only 700, and over 50,000 Gazans sheltering there, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. Underneath the Al-Shifa Hospital is the Hamas Command Center. It is several stories deep. We believe that there could be Israeli hostages held there. We believe that there is fuel that's been diverted there. We believe there are rockets down there. Researcher Jonathan Shanzer suggests this means the hospital will be the center of attention very soon. It can be a matter of days. Uh, the Israeli forces will take control on every uh, part that we see as important part of the uh, city of Gaza, including 
the area of uh, Shifa Hospital. Former Israeli security official Itamar Ya'ar says Israel has contacted the hospital and has asked the hospital management to clear everyone out so that the building is empty before Israeli troops arrive. It's not clear whether the hospital got the message. We feel that they are coming closer and closer. So, so the main feeling is that prepare yourself to the moment where they are going to get in to the Shifa hospital. A hospital surgeon said on Tuesday that everyone at the hospital is a civilian and that you don't see a single gun. He believes hospitals are usually protected by international law. Former Israeli security official Itamar Ya'ar says Israel has no interest in casualties inside a hospital. But he says a hospital is not an insurance policy. If, for example, uh, the Israeli forces will uh, face fire that will come out of this building, they will uh, use fire against it. Uh, and you're right. Uh, in this case, there will be casualties. He says the Israeli military hopes to capture the hospital within days. Bay Quarter, NTD News. Turning now to Africa, aid agencies say refugees arriving into Chad from Sudan have reported a surge in killings and fighting in Darfur. Ethnic-related killings have intensified since fighting broke out in April between the Sudanese armed forces and the paramilitary group, the RSF, according to witnesses and aid groups. The UNCHR says since then, 1.2 million people have fled to neighboring countries. Chad received most of them, followed by South Sudan and Egypt. Up next, we dive deeper into sexual exploitation of children on social media. How severe is it? An expert joins us to explore the meta whistleblower testimony in Congress. And in college football, could a legal battle be brewing in the Big Ten? We'll have the latest regarding the investigation into Michigan when we come back. How often are children exposed to sexual exploitation on social media platforms like Instagram and Facebook? The issue is in the spotlight after a meta whistleblower testified in Congress yesterday. Joining me now is Lina Nilan from the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. So I wanted to talk to you about the hearing with the Instagram whistleblower yesterday. Um, so Arturo Behar testified saying that uh, from his research, 13 to 15 year olds have received uh, uh, unwanted sexual advances on Instagram. So my, my question to you is, how did we get here to this point? Wow. Well, it's been a long history. I'd say decades long since Instagram started back, I believe, in 2012 of um, them continuously prioritizing profit over people and in particular kids. Um, while the revelations from the hearing you know, are um, disturbing, sadly, they are not new. And Instagram, two years ago, we had another whistleblower, Francis Hogan, showing that Instagram knows that they are harming teens. And yet continuously choose not to do the right thing and not to put in substantive changes that will actually safeguard their youngest users. And you said that Meta actually provides the very tools and features for predators to easily target and access children. Can you explain how this is? Yes, yeah, so they are, uh, by their own admission, creating an atmosphere and 
um, creating vulnerabilities of the children themselves. For example, reducing the mental health of young teen girls in particular, while simultaneously creating tools like allowing predators to access children. Their whole uh, business model is based on users connecting with each other and staying on the platform as long as possible. So they make it quite easy for strange adults to connect with young kids. Adults can see what kids are doing online, so predators can very easily tap into vulnerabilities or identify things that they can use to create um, a relationship to then further groom them. And they allow them to talk in direct messages, which is a more hidden way where we know a lot of the grooming and sexual exploitation actually happens. So again, they're simultaneously creating vulnerabilities in young people and then giving access to by strange adults and predators to these young children, um, trying to make those connections that the predators, of course, take advantage of, knowing that likely nothing will happen to them. And just to further hammer home the severity of the situation, if you could paint us for us a real world picture of the stakes uh, that uh, in terms of what's being what's being done, what, what the harm is. When we speak to young people, teens, the harm is so prevalent that they almost aren't even recognizing it. We have spoken to girls where they say they get weekly images of sexually explicit content, you know, images of men's private parts on a weekly basis. And it's become so normalized that they're not even realizing it. Instagram in particular is known to be a top destination for sex trafficking, sextortion, again, especially of young boys. Um, it's pornography exposure. It is one of the most dangerous platforms um, for young people, and yet they are not doing this and not doing enough to stem the abuses. And we are seeing children from all walks of life, from every demographic, being, t being approached by predators on Instagram. This is very important for families to understand that this is just the normal interactions that are happening on this very popular, very rich platform. So what needs to change for, for Meta so that children can be absolutely safe? So first of all, we really need Congress to act. They need to um, hold these tech companies accountable. Of course, it's not just uh, Meta and Instagram that are perpetuating harms, um, although they are among the worst. Congress needs to hold them accountable. Instagram has proven itself incapable and unwilling to do what they need to do. Um, but Meta also should be making substantive changes. We believe that they should stop allowing di direct messaging altogether for 15, uh, 14, and 13-year-olds. That's something that TikTok actually did when they recognized that grooming was such a problem. Um, they need to stop adults being able to um, find young profiles and young user profiles and comment on um, accounts because that's another form of grooming. They need to stop making uh, pornography accounts available to young people and really use all the tools that are available. There are tools available, um, technology to scan for grooming, child sex abuse material and predatory behavior. They tell us they're doing it. They are clearly not doing enough. All right, thank you so much today, Lina Nilan. Thank you. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update on the ongoing Michigan football investigation. 
That's right, Don. The Big Ten in Michigan could do legal battle should the conference suspend head coach Jim Harbaugh this week, according to multiple reports. Now, Monday, the conference sent a notice of disciplinary action to Michigan, which is required when a school is likely to be sanctioned for violating the conference's sportsmanship policy. The policy gives the commissioner power to suspend a head coach for up to two games and impose a $10,000 fine. Now, whatever the sanctions are, though, could be announced as soon as tomorrow. Meanwhile, the NCAA's investigation into possible sign stealing is still ongoing. That investigation likely won't conclude until after the season, though. Michigan, which is 9-0 and ranked third in the college football playoff rankings, is reportedly planning to take the conference to court should they suspend their head coach. Now, deciphering opponents' play calls isn't actually against the rules, but in-person scouting of future opponents, as well as using electronic equipment to steal signs, is prohibited. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NHL has a triple header planned, highlighted by the reigning Stanley Cup champion Las Vegas Golden Knights. The team is off to a blazing start with an 11-1-1 record. They'll host the LA Kings. Meanwhile, in the hardwood, after a night off, the NBA is back with 14 games tonight, including a pair of intriguing matchups. First, Victor Wembanyama makes his Manhattan debut against the Knicks at Madison Square Garden, just two games removed from his 38-point, 10-rebound performance in Phoenix. Also on the docket, the defending champion Denver Nuggets hosts the Golden State Warriors in a matchup of the past two NBA champions. And that's it for your sports news today. Don? Back to you. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Don Mai and for Tiffany Meyer, good night.